0: Hey, this is Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. I'm happy to be back. So I wanted to have a conversation today around a topic that I deal with a lot, Annie. I'm sure that you do. I'm sure a lot of y'all out there can relate, and that pay K-transparency. Annie, is this an
1: issue that you can relate to? I can. Um, I think I have lived in a weird bubble, though, where I've—we <laughs> talked about it a lot in my family. I've talked about it a lot among my friends. But I think that in my—it's only in my direct social group, but outside of that, yeah, it's something I've definitely struggled with. And when I <laughs> when I first started interviewing for jobs, I, I would just go in and have no real idea what a good number to ask. Like, I I didn't know.
0: Yeah, it's hard. I think you hit on something that I want to definitely dig deeper into in this episode, which is one of the reasons why it's hard is that we don't talk about it. We're weird about money. Conversations about money are considered rude or taboo or just awkward as hell. And so we're not having them. And thus, in situations where it is in our best interest to have clear conversations about money, particularly money that you want or feel you deserve, that can be tricky because of this kind of weirdness around money, both in, you know, professional settings, but also friendships. Like, I know how my best friend voted. I know a really awkward sexual thing that happened with my best friend, <laughs> but I don't know how much money she makes, right? So we, we're happy to be transparent about plenty of things. Money is not one of them. And I recently read this article on Medium by Jackie Lu about pay disparity. And this article literally shocked me. Why? Because she opens by disclosing her own pay. She starts, "I'm a software engineer with three years of experience working at Square, a public tech company in San Francisco. I make 130,000 plus 47,500 in stock for a total of 177,500 a year." She goes on to talk about how she didn't negotiate her base salary, but she did negotiate her four-year initial stock grant from 150000 to 190000 and sort of how long she's been working at this job. And when I first read this opening, I was like, oh my God, this woman is, you know, we know all of her business. Why is she putting this out there? And she does it for a really, really good reason. She says, writing all of that terrifies me. Strangers and peers may see what I earn and think I'm vastly overpaid. Or they may decide I'm underpaid Inevitably, companies that wish to hire me in the future will see my previous salary and either anchor my future pay at that level, limiting me to pay increases when switching jobs, or opt out of interviewing me altogether out of fear that I will be too expensive for them. So why share these numbers? Because we need to talk more about how much we get paid. Fair compensation starts with greater transparency. And she is 100% right. 66% of people who became aware of a pay disparity only found out about it after talking to a coworker about their compensation, which really is no surprise because how else would you find out, oh, I'm being paid less than this person who I am as qualified or more qualified than, or, oh, I'm making, you know, how do you even know anything about what you're being paid and how it ranks and how you feel about it if you don't have these conversations?
1: Yeah, and like you were saying, Bridget, for a long time, at least here in the United States talking about it, has sort of been taboo. It's something you avoid. It's up there with politics and religion. It's a question that you do not ask. And I do think that's changing. I remember recently um, that on Twitter it was kind of a, I don't know if it was trending, but people were saying, if you want to know how much I make, just DM me. Um, And that's part of uh, something that you've probably heard of, pay transparency. And it's pretty much what it sounds like. You would know how much other folks like you are making for the exact same work. And then you could negotiate accordingly if that number was not the same as yours. It has been touted as a way to achieve equal pay and to rectify the gender and racial wage gaps.
0: So if you listen to this podcast, you probably already know that the gender pay gap is some bullcrap. But let's look at some hard numbers. An April 2017 National Partnership for Women and Family report shows that black women are paid $0.63 for every dollar to non-Hispanic white men on average. And Latinas receive $0.54 for every dollar a non-Hispanic white male earns, the report found, which is pretty crummy.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely crummy.
0: So all of the data is super, super clear that one important way of curbing this gender pay gap is just people being able to talk about what they make. In a paper published by the IRLE's Journal of Industrial Relations, Marlene Kim investigated the effects of state pay secrecy laws. Kim, who was a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, compared the earnings in six states that had banned pay secrecy before 2012 to earnings in states that had not. Using the regression method to construct a comparison that controls for other factors, like worker demographics and regional wage differences, Kim found that women's earnings are 3% higher in states that have outlawed pay secrecy. She also found that states that have such policies, the gender wage gap is reduced as much as 12 to 15% for workers with a college degree, and by 6 to 8% for workers without. Now, this finding really makes it clear that states that you can talk about your pay disparity, those are the states where there can actually be some ground covered for making up for these wage gaps.
1: And one of the arguments that you'll often hear come up against pay trans- transparency is that essentially it'll be demoralizing. You, you incentivize performance with pay, and companies want to pay their top performers with more money. But studies have sh- shown way, 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 way more people think of themselves as top performers than management does, which I just makes sense. To combat this, companies could make sure that they put in place objective measures of success and communicate them clearly. This also is useful when it comes to complaints from employees. If you have an objective criterion, it's easier to explain differences in compensation. It also helps employees set achievable goals. And another thing about pay transparency is that it would do away with a lot of negotiating around salary, which, as we've talked about before on the show, is a tightrope that women have to walk between undervaluing themselves or aggressively negotiating and getting penalized for it. It also helps with productivity. Employees spend less time wondering if they're getting paid enough and report less feelings of dissatisfaction.
0: That has definitely, definitely been my experience. I think that as women, as people of color, as people who are marginalized, we sort of have to carry this really unfair burden of not knowing how to necessarily walk that tightrope that you were describing, Annie. That you can be if you don't if you don't negotiate aggressively you can really undercut yourself and you could be making more than you than you you know than you are but if you are, negotiate too aggressively like you're just expected to internally understand that how to walk that tightrope um i also think that one of the reasons why this just doesn't make any sense to me is that it privileges people who are perceived to be good at negotiation. We already know that there are a whole host of historical and cultural and societal factors that make it so that someone who looks like me might historically not feel comfortable being an aggressive negotiator. But somebody who looks like, I don't know, Donald Trump might have an easier time, right? If you're a man, if you're white, the perception is, oh, this is an aggressive go-getter, good for him, He's you know he knows his worth, all of that. Well, we kind of walk into a negotiating table with all of this extra societal baggage that frankly we didn't ask for that we didn't you know, want to be saddled with but yet we still have to figure out how to negotiate this tightrope while carrying and, and it's really unfair.
1: It absolutely is and um, with the whole thing around Brett Kavanaugh and all of this research that is coming out and all of this literature that's coming out about anger and how it's, seen as a good thing in men and a bad thing in women, I was reading an article that said in a negotiation setting, a man that displays anger is more likely to get what he's asking for, whereas a woman that does is more likely to be penalized and not get what she's asking for, which, yeah, it's just frustrating because how are we supposed to, we can't win, I I guess.
0: Yeah, and I don't think that when you walk into, you know, a negotiating situation, particularly for your pay or salary, that it should really come down to A, how good of a negotiator you are, and B, all of those societal things that you were just talking about. Like it shouldn't like why should our pay be tethered to all of this cultural nonsense that we just have to, you know, slog through every day. It's a reality, but it's really, really unfair, and I think women and other marginalized folks are, are really having to slog through this, and it's just exhausting and a pain. And like you said, I mean, it keeps you from focusing on your work, right? Like if you are a photographer and you know that any time you negotiate a job, you are going to have to take a, a, a stroll through coded gender and racial bullshit lane just to get what you feel you you owe how do you focus on being a good photographer it really is demoralizing and it really can keep us from focusing on what we do best which is you know your product what you do and all, having to my, like we all have to mire through this and i think negotiation conversations are uncomfortable for a lot of us for everybody although Previous Sminty co-host, Emily, once told me that she loved negotiation. It was like her favorite <laughs> thing. and like, shout out to her. So there are people out there who live for this, and kudos to them. I am not one of them. But, you know, it, it's, it is a distraction, and it, is, it can be a bit demoralizing to be like, oh, this is constantly something I'm going to have to constantly bump up against and constantly be wondering, well, is this person paid more? Is this person paid less? Like, how do I stack up? Am I paid less because I'm not as good? Like, am I paid more because that's the boss's cousin and, you know, he wants to make him happy? Like, all of those conversations are swirling in your head while you're just trying to do your job. And it's really, it it's, can just really be preventative in, you know, doing your best work. I know some of y'all are probably thinking, isn't it illegal for companies to do this? Don't companies have to allow workers to disclose their pay if that's what they want? Technically, that is true. Pay secrecy is considered illegal under Section 7 of the Federal National Labor Relations Act, which protects non supervisory employees from employer retaliation if they discuss their wages with colleagues. However, as we know, having a law on the books does not always mean that that is what's happening. A 2010 survey found that 66% of private sector workers and 15% of public sector workers were either formally or informally prohibited by their employers from discussing their pay with their coworkers. Um, I've definitely experienced this, where you know the management knows they can't formally reprimand someone for doing this, but they find ways of making it clear just how they feel about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've been in situations where it was clearly discouraged, um, <laughs> which it, it shouldn't be. It's it's strange to me now, doing the research on this episode and talking about it. I knew that was the case, but thinking about it, it's strange. It's almost like the mafia or something. Like, you can't talk about your pay.
0: It is, and this study makes a really good point that without feeling free to inquire about just how much comparable colleagues are earning, many women might not even know they are making less than their male counterparts and thus are much more unlikely to raise complaints or ask for better salaries. I've dealt with that specifically. I'll never forget one of my first jobs I I was working alongside. I was hired alongside a male counterpart, and we'd be doing very similar jobs. We had gone through the exact same training program, and we, were, we had just been off boarded off the exact same campaign, where we held the exact same positions. And he his starting offer was five thousand dollars more than me, and I only knew this because he told me. And so, had he not told me, I would never I would never have thought to ask for more. At the time, I had just finished teaching at Howard, and if you if you work in an academic setting, a lot of you might know that your pay is really sort of tethered to your education background. And so I didn't have a PhD, so I was always going to be making X amount of money. It was $45,000 a year. There was just no, like, like, unless I went back to school and got a different degree, that was never going to change. And coming out of that job where negotiation just wasn't even something that felt like you could do because it was very clearly tethered to your educational background. My first job after that was this job, and so I sort of didn't really know that 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 like negotiation was really a thing. You know, when I got offered this job, I got I, my starting offer was fifty-five thousand dollars a year, which for me, like that was I thought I was going to be rich. You know, I was like, oh, that's so much money. And then when I found out that my male colleague was offered sixty. Part of me was thinking I, I would never even occur to ask for sixty at the time. You know, I was in my twenties. That seemed like an unfathomable amount of money, and I just would never have even occurred to me to even start an offer at sixty. And that that was what he off, that was what his first offer was. And so, needless to say, him cluing me into that information turned out to be this like radical and transformative act that really reverberated through a lot of my career.
1: Yeah, and you you've touched on something that. I, I've experienced, and I think a lot of people, especially women, experience, but I th- I think that involved in all of this is kind of imposter syndrome, right? Like feeling like you, you're, you're not valuing yourself as much as you should be because there's something about you, or at least in my case, I, I always felt like, well, I'm lucky to have a job at all. <laughs> and I would get I don't know why, but for a long time, I would compare my salary to how much my dad was making because, like I said, I, I knew how much my dad was making, and I don't know why because he was a teacher. I'm in a completely different profession than him, but to me, like, I, I didn't think I should ever be making near as much as he was, which is bizarre, and I've had to kind of confront why I thought that, and... Um, Separate myself from that.
0: Why do, you, why do you think you thought that?
1: I think I thought that because in my head, oh, there's so much tied up into it. I think I thought he was a much more qualified, professional person. He, he um, was a lawyer, and he'd gone to school for 12 years, um, and that my job was not as valuable as his job. And also, I think— I just assume, I mean, he was my dad, he was an adult, like, I don't know, I still struggle with feeling like I'm a, I'm a child stumbling through this world, masquerading as an adult. Um, so there's a lot at play there, and I, I have had to just try to move on from that mindset.
0: Yeah, I can definitely identify with that. Um. One thing that has been helpful for me, I don't know if it will be helpful for you, is seeing it as a, like you mentioned that you felt like your dad was solidly an adult and that you felt like a child. Seeing it in terms of experience, not age, because I used to say something that was, I think, is a little bit not helpful. It's like, oh, so-and-so is making the same as me, but she's 20 and I'm 30, and that's not the right way to think about it. Thinking about it in terms of like, well, I have been doing this for X more years than them and I have X more degrees and X more training. So, that you, so it's not tethered to this idea of what it is to be an adult employee versus someone who is, you know, trying to be an adult or masquerading as an adult but secretly feels like a kid or something.
1: I think that's great advice. Um, I know that that's something that um, companies, not just in the U.S., but um, France is, like, one of the first examples I think of, but this whole idea of seniority and um, just tying salary to, like, how long you've been working at a company. Um, And I I think that is changing, too. Not that that doesn't need to be, like, eradicated completely, but I don't think that it should be the entire equation.
0: I completely agree. I completely agree. I think that's a good way to think about it, and I'm happy to see there's there's movement in some countries around institutionalizing these things. So it's not something that you have to that you Annie has to sort out internally, but that it's something that is more explicitly woven into the culture of where you work.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to see that too. Um, and this whole conversation, it, it's actually a little it's worse for women. Who work in creative fields, like, like you and I, Bridget. Yes,
0: it is worse. And we'll dive more into that after this quick break. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So, Annie and I are, I consider, I mean, I consider myself a creative professional. Is that how you would describe yourself, Annie?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's funny because I totally stumbled into this whole field. But yes, I would describe myself as that. So
0: you might not be super surprised to learn this then. While the national average gender wage gap hovers around 24%, a study by HoneyBook found that women in the creative economy are making 32% less than their male counterparts for the exact same jobs. Breaking this down by annual income, the researchers found that women earn approximately $30,700 while men take in about $45,400. Does this, does
1: this shock you? Or are you like, that sounds about right? <laughs> it's sad, but I'm almost surprised it's not more, that the difference isn't bigger. So no, I am not shocked. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's, it's... Doing the research for this episode really just put some numbers and some math behind the things I have felt in my bones for very long. And this just confirmed that those, you know, I'm not, that feeling is not coming from nowhere. It's, it's actually grounded by the math. And I think something that you said earlier really stuck with me, this idea that as a creative person or as a creative professional, or they're, they're calling it creative entrepreneur, which I, I, I had not heard that term before. But as folks who make money, in, in, a, in a creative pursuit, it is this idea that we should be lucky to be paid at all. And you mentioned that earlier, that you, that you felt lucky to have a paying job, kind of irregardless of how much you were being paid. And I think that working in the arts, you know, if you're a painter or a photographer or an event planner or, you know, a podcaster, I think there is this undercurrent that what you do is not actual labor. It does not take actual skill. People should feel free to request that you do that for little or no pay and that you should be happy if you get, if you get a check for doing it, you should just shut up and be happy.
1: Yeah, I have experienced so much of that. I'll I'll never forget once in, uh, as I've mentioned before, I do some acting and, um this the industry is pretty notorious for not paying at, at like a, when you're starting out um, to the point I, I'm surprised when there's pay involved, and it's generally you'll get paid in real footage, which you'll probably never see that's just to show that you've acted in something, so you're literally acting in something to show that you can act um, and this one guy told me once, "You have better chances of." Winning a billion dollar jackpot in the lottery, than making being successful as an actor like making a paycheck that could like you could live off of, and I I catch myself thinking that all the time, and it's just bizarre. Um, but yeah, yeah, that idea that you're lucky to be paid, that you're there's four thousand people in line behind you willing to do it if you're not gonna do it.
0: Oh man, I mean. That is, there's so much to unpack there. Um, that feeling, I think, as, as creative professionals especially, that if you don't like this, there are a hundred other people out there that would kill for the opportunity to do this for free. They would pay us to do it. That's, that, and I think that's not incorrect, but that kind of twisted, like, like idea that if you're not happy, there's the door. There's, we, have, we have 10 people waiting to replace you. I think that is so damaging. And I think that it's a, it's cyclical. Like that's what keeps us working for free, some of us. You know? there is there are there's this huge conversation right now happening in writers' communities about whether or not a writer should work for free. And I certainly don't want to I think it's I think it's more complicated. I actually think that in the writing field, it's not always black and white. But that one of the arguments I've seen a lot is when you accept free work for writing, you are making it easier for the industry to undervalue all of us. And I think whether or not logistically it works out so that you have to sometimes take a free gig or not, I think that's true, that when you feel like you have to accept a free gig, it makes it easier for someone else to say, oh, well, I didn't pay her for that that piece of writing. I'm not gonna pay the next person. And there's a market for people willing to do it for free. And I think it does kind of, when, when you work in these industries, it does kind of warp them. I want to back up really quickly and kind of point out some of the specific industries where the gender pay gap is worse. By far, female DJs and musicians fared the worst, earning half of their male counterparts' wages. Photographers earned 60 cents to every male dollar. Event planners bring in about 75% of a man's income. And cinematographers fared the best, dropping the gap to 12 cents. So... I, you know, having known a lot of people who work in these industries, DJs, photographers, event planners, I think these are industries where people will just expect, you know, like, I have to pay for this. Like, you're just taking pictures. You're clicking a button. I shouldn't have to pay you for what I could do myself. You know, somebody would do that for free. And I really do think that perception is what keeps these particular creative economies from being more fair.
1: Yeah, I agree. And and recently we've had some pretty public examples of this. Like in Hollywood, um, after the Sony hack, we found out that Seth Rogen was making $10 million more than co-star Charlize Theron. Or in the case of the movie All the Money in the World, when it was revealed that Mark Wahlberg was paid 10 times the amount of his co-star who had the same amount of screen time, Michelle Williams. Um For salary finagling that happened around the reshoots, it's actually kind of complicated, but the difference was $1.5 million to $80 per diem for food and water. So Michelle Williams was getting $80 a day per diem, like to pay for food and water. Um, And that came out to be less than $1,000 total, which is ridiculous.
0: Yeah, that is so ridiculous. And these are big stars, right? Charlie's Throne, you know, Michelle Williams, these are, these are, a-listers, And I just think, you know, it's important to point out, you know, it's, it's ridiculous that someone as famous as Charlize Theron or Michelle Williams would have to deal with this, but that if they're dealing with this as women who are creatives, it's—imagine how, you know, your favorite YouTuber, your favorite, you know, essayist, your favorite podcaster, imagine what it's like for them if these super-rich, mega-famous A-listers are dealing with this bullshit in, this, in this such ridiculous ways— You know, the people who are making the content that you love to consume, a lot of times are dealing with it in worse ways. And I just think we need to talk about it. Like, we need to talk about the fact that, you know, you might think that someone is living one kind of lifestyle because you see them on YouTube, you see them on TV, whatever. But that is often very much not the case.
1: Yeah, I used to work almost exclusively in YouTube. And I, I was fortunate in the way I was being paid to do other things, and it was part of my, like, salaried work. So I was getting paid. But I would get this spreadsheet from YouTube every month, and it was this massive spreadsheet, and all, everything was so small and difficult to read. But then, like, you'd scroll, 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 and you'd get to the bottom line, and for, like, hundreds of thousands of views, I would make 69 cents or something. I mean, nothing, nothing.
0: What am so, I gonna do with 69 cents? And so, so why is it's, it see, that's almost a sort of like golden handcuffs thing where you're thinking, well, you know, I get to have a platform, I get to talk to people, I get to make videos, and I get that is fulfilling, but financially, it's not even worth your time. Like at a certain point, it's, it's that, that 69 cents. Like, what are you gonna do with that?
1: I, I don't know. A part of me was like, please don't even send me that. <laughs>
0: Exactly. I've worked jobs where it's like, it's not even worth it to invoice. Like this is, I'm being paid so little. I'm a, currently a freelancer, so I work for myself. I pay taxes on this. So like at a certain point, I'm paying you for the privilege of working for you. So it's, it's just this really weird situation where the creators sometimes are the ones who, are, who
1: end up in, a, in an
0: inadvertent way, even though they're being paid, kind of working for free anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. Um, we used to call it the Wild West because you couldn't figure out how to make money on the internet anyway. No, like, no one could. But eventually, something's got to give. Uh, we've been in the Wild West for a long time now.
0: Yeah, and I think you see it with how the media landscape is shifting and changing. I mean, people lose paying work Every day, Like, I think, the, I think the economy is really switching toward freelance, project-based, gig-based work for creatives, which, you know, has its own weird pitfalls. But I think the, the question of how do you get fairly contributed for the work that you produce online, oftentimes, you know, like, you and I, we research a podcast. It takes a while. Like, we don't just come to the microphone with, you know, this is, as, as good as we are at this, this is not, you know... Improvisational it takes a lot of research, a lot of work. And I think that's true for a lot of creative folks out there, even though people might not see that labor. So how do we produce a landscape where people can be compensated fairly for what they are producing? I don't have the answer.
1: Yeah, um, but a step in the right direction is what we're talking about, right? Like being transparent about it. Um, and one of the sad things about this is that A lot of women don't even realize that it's a problem, right?
0: Yeah, that HoneyBook survey we were talking about, they surveyed over 3,000 creative entrepreneurs. Now, of these entrepreneurs, 63% believe men and women are paid equally in creative industries, even though the gender wage gap is worse for creatives than traditional industries. So the creative industry is actually worse than other industries in terms of gender pay disparity. But yet, because of the weirdness of the creative industry, and I think for some other reasons as well, which we'll get into, a lot of folks kind of don't even realize there's a problem. And there is a problem. You know, the sad reality is that some of your favorite content creators are probably not making a ton of money. The researchers discovered that there are far more freelance and self-employed women than men living below the poverty line over 37% of female creative entrepreneurs are making less than $9 per hour compared to only 20% of male creatives. For nearly a quarter of the women studied, that number drops below $5, putting them well under the federal minimum wage. Similarly, only 25% of female creatives are earning over $25 per hour in revenue compared to 45% of male creatives. And yeah, I think like what you were saying is that one of the big problems is that because of the societal weirdness of talking about money because of the, the, you know, gender BS that we have to deal with, a lot of us out there maybe don't even realize that there's an issue. And I think what you were talking about earlier is, is I know I keep coming back to this, but I think it's it's so important, just the sort of nature of creative work, being told that, like, being given a platform or, you know... You, that you should be happy that you're getting anything at all because you're able to cut a check talking into a microphone or whatever or like painting a picture or taking a photo or planning an event, that you should be grateful for anything that you get. And if you ask any questions, one, you'll look ungrateful, and two, there's the door because there's a million other people out there who would, who would kill for this opportunity. And I think that, like, that thing is such a gross, a gross perspective Gabby Dunn, the author of Bad With Money, she actually went on an episode of Keep It with Ira Madison. And Ira and Gabby had this amazing conversation about their time working at BuzzFeed and how all of this came into play. Here's here's what she had to say.
1: It's like these companies too, like they pay you so little for the privilege of working for them. And it's supposed to sort of be like, well, we're
0: paying you in exposure, but we did like multiple episodes on it. Exposure is not going to pay your rent or buy you dinner. So yeah, this is, you know, that that feeling is 100% my life. Like I was driving in a car when I heard this, this interview and I thought, oh my God, that's me. Like I almost had to pull over because I thought, yes, she actually verbalized how I feel that you sort of get these golden handcuffs where you feel kind of afraid to make waves or ask questions or even just inquire about how much you're being compensated because you're made to feel like you should just be grateful for getting anything at all.
1: Yeah, and um, I, like I said, that's, that's been pretty much my entire experience in the field of acting. Um, and I know it's most people's experience. It's not uh, exclusive to me at all. It's kind of a running joke that <laughs> not only are you not going to get paid, you're not going to get whatever tiny thing that they agreed to get to you to show that you did this work, to make that, to get exposure. and to, it, Because it, you have to have, it's sort of like your resume. They won't even give you that to put on your resume. And it's just assumed. It's, it's just a, the way it is.
0: That is so, I mean, it's, not even, it's like dehumanizing, you know? You've already accepted that your worth is nothing. You've already sort of internalized, like, okay... I have to show up at the, at the correct time, you know, ready to go. And that is worth nothing. I am worth zero on that on that front. Um, and then the thing, the like pitiful thing that you negotiated for, this small pittance that you were promised, you don't even get that. Like, Like that feeling is so, I mean, it's a bummer. It's a bummer. And you can really internalize it, I think, and be like, oh, well, that means that I am worthless, right? You know, I, I think when you are, have you, when you've accepted, okay, this is a crap situation, I'm going to make the best of it, and not even getting that one nugget that was going to make the crap sandwich worth it in the first place, like, how do you make sense of that? How do you internalize yourself as a valued, creative, talented, professional person when that is just the vibe all the time and you're supposed to just
1: eat it with a smile? It's hard not to internalize those kinds of things, and especially when, this industry that in particular is for women mostly based on your looks and less based on your talent. Um, there's a commonly recited statistic that I'm not sure how true it is, but it's that um, they'll decide within two two seconds whether or not they want to even watch you audition just by your the image, whether or not you fit the look. So they might not... You might be paying for this thing that nobody's even watching. They're just looking, evaluating based on how you look and going from there. And then also I've heard that um, the number of followers you have on social media sometimes (laughs) impacts whether or not they'll watch it at all. And so it is hard to not feel like it's completely pointless and that it's hard not to start evaluating yourself in that way, especially if you do just get rejection after rejection after rejection, then it's hard. Um, I, I love doing it. And I, sometimes it's sad because I feel stupid for trying to do it because almost, it feels pointless.
0: Yeah, I can, something I'm really, I'm like hearing in your voice and I'm, I'm zeroing in on it because I certainly know what it feels like, when you do something that you love, right? When you speak, when you talk about acting, I can tell that acting is work that you love, that fulfills you, that makes you feel whole, makes you feel good. And having there be something that makes you feel so demoralized attached to work that also makes you feel good is a total mind. And that's that's how I feel too, where, you know, I would look at these people who were writers or podcasters or made things or whatever, and I would think you know, they're probably making so much money, but knowing, and and who knows if that's true? I think that it's one of those things that, you know, when I see someone that seems so successful and it seems like they've hacked this whole system, in my mind, I come up with a story that like, oh, they're probably working on a million things behind the scenes that you don't see and they're probably really happy. They probably, you know, live in a sustainable home that's not chaotic. They probably, you know go to the dentist regularly. They probably have health insurance. Like all of these things, all of these insecurities that I feel about trying to be a creative professional and pursuing this as a goal because it's something that I like, I project on them. And it really, it makes you feel crummy. You know, you, you want to do this thing that makes you feel good. But when that thing is also attached to this constant sense of undervaluing and constantly feeling like, oh, I, I'm not worth X amount. I'm not worth this. It, it's just such a mind... Like I can't even really unpack it. It's just so intense. And I think the key is how do we not internalize that and how do we put that on industries, on outlets, on media companies, on casting agents and say, "Hey, y'all are actually perpetuating a system that makes a lot of us feel like garbage and we don't know what to do with it." Like how do we how do we not internalize that but then look at the actual systems that are making that a reality in our lives?
1: Yeah, and I think um rejection sucks and you're not being like a big baby. Like you can handle it as an adult, but it sucks. And to be in an industry that constantly um, does reinforce this idea that really you have little value, that sucks.
0: Yeah, it does suck. And I think it is important to remind folks that if that's how you feel, if you're just trying to make it out there, you're, yeah, you're not being a baby. It, you we have to deal with things that really emotionally can be hard to process and if you're someone like me where you're and i'm sure a lot of folks are you might be as well where you feel good when your work is when you feel good about your work but when you don't feel good about your work like when i don't feel right about my work i don't feel good like i like i go into a dark place and i i can't have and maybe that's not healthy but when you know the work that that I've chosen to do in my life is work that I do because I care about it, right? My activism, I do that because I give a shit about this. My creative pursuits, I do that because I care about it. And I care about, you know, connecting with people and hopefully, like, helping people sort through complicated stuff in society that we're all slogging through together and learning and growing together and yada, 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 all that stuff. I do that stuff because it makes me feel good and I care about it. It's not just a job. And for me... When I don't feel good about how things are going on that front, nothing in my life feels good, right? I I can't feel good about almost anything because that is such an internal fire inside of me. And so, you know, I was watching this this show um, on Netflix about a child actress, and her father was sort of her manager but was also an actor. And he was like, oh, I never wanted her to be an actor because I didn't want this life of constant rejection for her. And I really, even though this was fictional... I felt that. I thought, yeah, that does, that does suck. Like, it does suck to have to deal with that and then go out and be a person. Because as we know, we like to pretend that our work bucket and our relationship bucket and our family bucket and our friend bucket, those are all separate buckets, but they're actually one bucket. Like, it's all intersecting, you know. Career you in the office is the same as at home you with your friends. Like, it's all one thing. And it's just really i guess what i'm saying is that it's really difficult to deal with that and then have to go out and like be a person who has a regular life outside of that it's like it's it's almost impossible for me and i can only imagine how it is for other folks as well and I, I, and we don't talk about it so people feel like oh i'm a baby or oh i'm emotional or oh i'm taking this too seriously or oh you know I need to learn to let it go, or oh, it's not personal; it's just business. But it can feel personal. It feels personal.
1: It absolutely does because um, creative things are personal by nature. So it, it it's hard not to take it that way. And I don't know. I've I've heard a lot of advice on like just grow a thick skin, and I think that that's legitimate. And I I've definitely gotten like <laughs> toughened up. But I also think that it just wears you down no matter what. Um, and it is hard to go out after that and not let it impact other parts of your life. Um, and I another part of this conversation is I I feel, and I'm sure you probably feel the same way, Bridget, that um, a lot of people seem to think that um, creative work isn't really work.
0: Yeah, I've definitely, exp- I've, I've kind of experienced both of that. I know people that assume that because they hear my voice on a podcast that I'm wealthy, which is hilarious to me. That's so funny. <laughs> um, I've had people assume that the work that we do is not really work. So why do we get paid? But I think I think again, like I think we need to demystify, and that's that's part of what I want to do with this podcast. I want we want to I want to demystify creative work. Right? It's not magic that happens in a you know land far far away somewhere. But it's not nothing either. It's not just you know pressing a button on your phone and calling it a day. Like For some shows, I mean, I've had to get up at 3 a.m. to get on a train to the middle of nowhere to interview somebody that I didn't like talking to to then go home and edit it all together. Like, you know, it is work. You know, I was up to prepare for this episode today. It was up until 4 a.m., you know? It is labor. It is work. And just because people don't see that or don't understand that, doesn't mean it's not true. And I think anybody out there, you know, I had a friend who was, who was a wedding photographer, and she was like, yo, if you knew the amount of people who expected me to do this for free, it would curl your toes, you know? If you knew the amount of people who thought that, like, what I'm doing is just a hobby, and I'm sure for some people it is a hobby, but if you get good enough at it, why shouldn't you make money, right? Like, you, you went out and drove to the event or
1: whatever, like, why shouldn't you make money for that? You could
0: have been, been sleeping. You could have been doing anything else.
1: Yeah, you're providing value, right? You I'm assuming that a lot of times when people ask for you to do it for free, then they're either someone that you know or they they kind of say, "Well, you can put it in your portfolio." Um but the reality is for something like wedding photos, there's a market for that. Like people pay for that. They're, if you want them, there's value for to you in having it done professionally and not by just I don't know, your nephew. Like, not everyone can do it, or you would have just asked Exactly.
0: Exactly. Like, oh, I want that tattooed on my forehead. If everybody can do it, you wouldn't be asking me to do it, you know? If anyone can do it, I wouldn't have been doing it for two years. If anybody can do it, like, I remember seeing this thing on Twitter, and it was clearly like a joke, but it, it really made me think, where it was a woman who does um, really intricate nail art, like fingernail art. And it was a DM where someone was like, oh, um, how much do you charge for this? I would love to get my nails done. What's the cost? And she said, you know, however much it costs, $80, whatever. And the person replied, like, $80? You know, like, how do you, how do you expect to, you know, like, that's way too much money. Like, like why would I pay you for that? You know, like, what, what's your game here? And she responded, well, you know, I'm not the one who, like, I'm the one who knows how to do it. Like, I'm the one who can do it, and you're coming to me. Like, you're the one who doesn't have the money to get your nails done and is, like, haggling in someone's DMs, right? Like, if, it, if there wasn't value, you would do it yourself. But the fact that you're coming to someone who has that skill as a professional means that it takes it's, talent and work. And like, that's, like, your tacit acknowledgement of that. And so the whole conversation is kind of silly, you know?
1: yeah. Yeah. uh, It's so funny how many people assume anyone can do it, but then when it comes down to it and they can't find anyone to just do it for free, like, yeah, it turns out that there are professionals and that you want one for whatever it is that you're looking for.
0: And what if we treated creative pursuits, you know, oh, you can put it in your portfolio, whatever. What if you were going to get dental work done, and you were like, well, I'm not going to pay you in money for filling my cavity, <laughs> but imagine all the exposure that you will get when people see my beautiful smile. You know, like, or like <laughs> what if you told that to any of, like, literally any other professional that, now I'm not going to pay you, pay you, but when people see your, the, the great work you did on this gallbladder surgery, think about, <laughs> think about how valuable that will be for you.
1: So many people who need gallbladder surgery will come to you because of me. You're welcome.
0: Absolutely. So I really want to continue this conversation around page transparency and let everyone know what's up and really sort of demystify all of it. But first, a quick break. we are back. Thank you, sponsor. So when I was preparing for this episode, you know, when I read that article that we started the show with, I was like, oh my God, this woman started with her own pay transparency. And I found that to be so shocking. So when I was preparing for this episode, I thought part of me wants to do that. I'm still unsure of whether I want to or not. Like I have not decided. Um, But I do think it's important to have these conversations. And demystify, you know, pay and what people are paid and all of that. So I'm going to do that. I'm a little nervous. We'll see how it goes. Maybe we'll cut it. Maybe we won't. Who knows? But for my work at this podcast, I make $2,000 a month. And if you've ever wondered how much does a podcaster make, it, it ranges a lot. I work across other projects as well for which I am paid differently but that's how much the podcast that you're listening to, like, that's what I make. And so, honestly, shout out to Jackie Lou at Medium who inspired me to do that. And it does feel weird, you know, this idea of, like, one, are people going to be like, oh, my God, she's massively overpaid for this. I can't believe that's how much they pay. Or will they be, oh, my God, like, like neither, though, neither option feels good. It doesn't feel good to, to have people think you're overpaid. Actually, maybe it does feel good, because then you're like... Yeah, I'm (laughs) balling, but you know, it doesn't feel good to have people be like, "Oh, that's what like you did. You do that for that." You know, it's a, it's a that feels crummy and bad and awful. And yeah, I think demystifying what we make is important because a lot of people just don't know. You know, they don't know. You know, when I was first starting out as a podcaster, I didn't know. What was inappropriate? Like, I didn't know if podcasters made a million dollars or nothing, right? Because we don't talk about it. I, didn't, I, I couldn't tell you if photographers make $100 an hour or, like, 12. Like, I really do not know. And I think that, that those conversations, particularly for things that seem a bit flashy, like, oh, you're a YouTuber or you're on TV or this or that, you know, like, I remember reading about Megyn Kelly, her, her deal with NBC going south this week, and when they disclosed how much she made, I was like, what? And that really put it into sharp context for me, you know, what the network had invested in with her show and what they were losing financially by her leaving. Like, So when I found out the concrete number that Megyn Kelly was you know, making at NBC, which was $69 million for a three-year contract, it really put into sharp perspective a just how much that network had invested in her financially and b how much they were out because they still have to pay that money even though she's no longer you know going to be on the air they still have to pay that money how much of a financial investment that was and and having that number put it in such sharp like, detail and focus to me. And so I really do think, even though it feels weird, like, I'm sure she feels weird to have everybody know how much that deal was worth. Although, again, it's so much money. Maybe she's like, yeah, look how much I pulled in. Um, And it does feel awkward. Like, I'm trembling right now talking about this because it is awkward. But, um, yeah, like, 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 working through the awkwardness of talking about money will help get us all free. You know, if you, if you are out with your girlfriend's you know, my, again, my, my friends will tell me... Like, I know things about my friend's boyfriend's penis that I <laughs> probably shouldn't know, but I don't know how much she makes, right? <laughs> like, I remember having a conversation when one of my good friends lost her job where someone said, oh, well, you're supposed to have six months of your salary saved up. And I have that. And I was like, what? You have, this whole time, you've had six months of your salary saved up and I've been paying for brunch? You know, <laughs> like that conversation. Like, ha- like, those conversations are hella weird and hella awkward. But we talk about everything else with our friends. Like, we should start, like, like let's start there. Let's start by demystifying money conversations and Working through the awkwardness and the discomfort, and again, I'm not going to lie; this is hella uncomfortable, but let's work through that so that we can get to a place where it's not uncomfortable to have that conversation, because if you have conversation if, if you get comfortable with having that conversation over drinks with your friends now, you might feel more comfortable to do it with your hiring manager who's going to determine if you make 70 or 80 thousand dollars a year, right? You might feel more comfortable. Determine, like having that conversation with, with a stakeholder who can really make an impact in your life. But I think we all have to start from a place where pay transparency and talking about money and talking about how we make it, particularly as creatives, I think, and as women, is not such a scary, awkward thing. And working through that together.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And like I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I feel... I've always known talking about money is, has been a weird thing in the United States, but... It never has been for me. So I know, I could tell you what all of my friends make. Exactly. So
0: you know, you know how much all of your people make. Like, if you yes. if it's not, an, it's like, is it an awkward conversation to have? Like how did you come to this information, I guess is my
1: question. We're just, we've just told each other. I think it's it's because we do a lot of stuff together. So when we're planning trips, I think that's originally how it came up. And we were like, okay, well, what is in the affordable range for everybody? What is, what is outrageous for someone and then most of my friends are very um blunt and just (laughs) just tell you um i have one friend in particular that like she'll she'll list out i have this offer from here this offer from here this offer from here she's a traveling nurse um what do you think which one is the better option she we're like part of her negotiation process (laughs)
0: I love that. I mean, but you wouldn't be able to build that supportive community of friends if you didn't have those conversations in specifics.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and to, to be transparent with you, Bridget, I make $1,200 um, every two weeks. I'm really bad about keeping jobs. Every two weeks, I get a check for $1,200. But I am different than you that I am a salaried employee. That's right. So
0: I, and I, this is something else that I hate admitting, and... I, oh God, people are going to write in and like, I get it, I I deserve it. Uh, Since I'm not full-time, I don't have health insurance. And you might be thinking, why aren't you on the exchange? There is a very complicated personal reason for that um, involving timing. And And it's a logistical thing that like I will get into later. Or if you DM me or like email me, I'll explain it to you. But it's very boring and it's very like, oh, well, this thing happened at this date and that time happened at that date. And therefore you have to wait until next year. So blah, 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 long story short. But yeah, I mean... Basic things, like, like it sucks to feel like an adult who, like, like nothing makes me feel like I don't have my life together more than that thing, and I'm I'm very blessed in that my mom is a doctor, and that I live in a city that you can really, at least for me, if you know how to navigate a few things, it isn't that, it isn't as awful as you might think, I guess I'll put it that way. But, you know, on Twitter recently, I was like, yeah, self-employed creative professionals, when is the last time that you saw a dentist? And some of the answers, I was like, yeah, we are really making, like clearly making some sacrifices in our overall lives to do this thing. And it's okay to acknowledge that. So I'm sure there's somebody out there, like I know other folks who are in this podcast family who I've talked, who I've talked to about this. And they're like, yeah, I don't have health insurance. I've been on health insurance for years. And it's, again, it's, scary and like my heart is racing it's scary to talk about and it and it makes you feel weirdly it just makes it doesn't make you feel good you know and i think in an industry where it's so like steeped in top 30 under 30 this and you know everybody wants to be successful and like you see images of success all the time and you want that and you want to know what that looks like and what that feels like and maybe you're projecting stuff because again who knows everyone's dealing with their own stuff but it's just this industry is so strange because of how many of these professional things are attached to how you feel about yourself and your own self-worth and maybe that's unhealthy but I don't know how to how to detach the two you know
1: yeah absolutely I mean it's pretty that's essentially what it the economy telling you, putting a price to your worth. And I will say for me, I, I in general have benefited so much from women ahead of me. Because um, I, I was pretty oblivious when I entered job market. I, I, I'm assuming a lot of people are. Uh, but they told me to ask for things that I wouldn't have even known to ask for. And <laughs> I've, I've benefited from having this really great friend group where. We're very open about it, so I do think totally. having this is is great. Yeah,
0: totally. And I think you know I want to end with talking about what we can do, how, how we can get free together, and lift as we climb, and all that good stuff. And I think the number one thing is what you said: talk about how much you make. I think it's especially important, you know, if you're a man, if you're a white person. I think it's especially important because. I think we can feel sort of boxed out. We don't know. We don't have the information. And so having those conversations I think is really, really important. And I'm ha- I'm so happy that you have that, that supportive community of folks in your life with whom you can not just talk about this with, but get some advice from and be like, oh, well, that's a good deal and that doesn't feel like a good deal or like this is a good offer or you should ask for more on this offer or whatever. You know, having someone who can help you with those conversations I think is so important. Um, the Muse puts this really, really well. They write... Instead of jumping in headfirst, keep your eyes open for opportunity. The next time you're up for a raise or receive a job offer, instead of circumventing the number, that thing you're talking about, why not just say it? This is how it would sound. My boss approved the raise I asked for, so now I'm holding out at a steady 80K. My goal is to be making a six-figure salary by the time I'm 35. Your friend or coworker will probably feel as enlightened as you feel after being candid about your financial situation the more often you start opening up about your earnings and your future salary goals, the more comfortable you'll be with it so that eventually mentioning your income will be as easy as talking about your insane summer electric bill. And I really, like, I just loved that so much that if you start having those conversations, yeah, they might be weird at first and your heart might be racing and you might be thinking, you know, this is awkward and weird and maybe it is, but that's the only, like, the only way out is through. You know, the only way to... To normalize it, so that talking about money, which would benefit all of us, you know, talk having these kind of conversations. The only way to to get to that point is if we start doing it.
1: Yeah, and and what I love about that quote is um, I do think that a lot of people feel weird about it at first, but it's having those conversations is good for everyone. I think probably if you you and your employee or your employee your coworker. Have this conversation, both parties are going to be happy that you had it. Like, I think, um, in my experience, um, we have pretty open conversations about it in our department, and it's awkward at first, but I think it does make it kind of removes this tension around it because you're like, oh yeah, we're all on the same page.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I'm I'm so proud that you know like how much your friends and parents and brother makes. You know
1: yeah I feel really lucky. I hadn't realized how strange it strange it is, I guess. Um, I knew it, i like I said, I knew it was weird. Money is a weird topic, but in my life it hasn't hasn't been so much
0: so another way that we can really help tackle this together, in addition to just talking about money, is making salaries public in two thousand seventeen, California Governor Jerry Brown vetoed a b twelve zero nine the gender pay Gap Transparency Act in a state with one of the strongest equal pay environments in the country. The vetoed bill would have required companies with more than 500 employees to collect and report the salary information for both men and women in the same job to the state, which would be published online. And at the federal level, Trump suspended an executive order put in place by Obama that would have advanced pay transparency for federal contract employees. The executive order would have required companies to report salaries by race and gender. So, you know, there, there is movement on this from other states, states like Alaska, Illinois, Minnesota, and New Hampshire already collect and publish data on the pay gap. Um, but, you know, we still have a long way to go in terms of making this a, a normalized institutional thing where it's just a given that you might have some idea of, of what folks are making.
1: Yeah, and some companies are, are taking this into their own hands, like Whole Foods has a pay transparency policy, social media startup Buffer, posted employee salaries online. And we've been focusing a lot on the US in this conversation, but it isn't just a problem in the US. I remember reading in one of my high school textbooks that I brought up before that it was impolite to ask about money in other countries too. So listeners from other countries, please let us know if that's the case. In early 2018, Iceland passed a law requiring companies prove they have a fair pay practice in place. If they have more than 25 employees and they don't, they face a daily fine. And in the UK, they passed a similar law this year as well, requiring all companies with 250 employees or more have, um, they have to post differences in salary between male and female employees each year.
0: I think that's great. Again, I think getting to a place where this is not just an internalized, weird thing that we're just expected to have inside of us, but rather is externalized, where it's like, there it is in the policy, there it is in the, you know in the, like, baked into the fabric of how we are going to do business, I think that's so important to move that weird thing from a weird thing inside of us to a thing on a page where, you know, you can point to it and say, oh, here's what we're doing to, you know, deal with the pay gap, here's how it's being challenged, here are your rights, here's what you can do, here's information you can find, as opposed to having to, like, sneak and find out in weird ways and all of that.
1: Yeah, and something else that we can do um, or that you can do if you're a hiring manager is uh, don't base salaries on salary history.
0: Absolutely. You know, since women tend to earn less in pretty much all occupations when compared to men, the practice of being asked to tell one's previous salary can compound these inequalities and follow us for the course of our entire careers. If you have to tell someone what you made at your last job and they're going to tether your your next pay offer with that, you really are kind of starting from a a lower point, right? Like, that increases the likelihood that women would have to negotiate from a lower starting point than their male counterparts.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, I've definitely fallen into this trap of thinking, so that's just the way I think about it, is basing it on my um, salary history. And when I first interviewed for, like, my real job a real job i i totally blanked when they asked me how much i was looking for how much i was looking to to make and i said some ridiculously low number and um a part of it too was i felt very underqualified for the job like maybe if i say something really low then i'll be more likely to get it i regret it looking back but i was in college i was new to the whole thing um and i'm fortunate Also, managers should just be this way. But my the person who was interviewing me said they would never pay anyone below thirty two thousand dollars a year, which is way more than I asked for. Oh my gosh! I'm so curious. What what did you ask for? I feel like like looking back, it was a blur. I think I said like twice. You're you're like,
0: I'll I'll pay you. How about that? Yes,
1: (laughs) I'll make you cookies every day. I'll be such a delight.
0: Well, Annie, you'll be happy to know that recently, states like California, Delaware, Massachusetts, and Oregon, along with the cities of New Orleans and New York City and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, now have pretty much banned the act of asking candidates their salary histories from previous jobs. And so that might have made college job applicant Annie's life a little bit easier.
1: (laughs) I, I hope so. I really went through a string of very bad job interviews. I like to think I've gotten better now. It's really ironic because I used to teach um, a class on how to do a successful job interview. I, I'm not sure why. <laughs> God, I,
0: I have not had a job interview in a very long time. I can only imagine. I mean, I, God. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I don't, it's been such a long time since I've had an office job that I, I can only imagine I'm terrible at it. I remember once at a job interview being interviewed to blog about politics for Think Progress. They asked me what is probably the most obvious question, like if you were preparing for questions that you would, might be asked in an interview like this, they asked, what are some other, like I was going to be a political blogger, what are some other blogs that you read And I I wake up every morning and I read 10 political blogs, right? Like, I eat, sleep, and breathe political blogs. But I pulled a total Sarah Palin. My mind went completely blank. And I think I just said, all the good ones. (laughs) Like, I blurted it out. It was so bad. I did not get the job. They were very right not to give me that job. But, um,
1: yeah, I I should take your class. I once, my worst job interview was the day after my 21st birthday. And, um... I had to leave in the middle of the job interview to go vomit. <laughs> <laughs> and then I came back in, and she, she said, so I see your birthday was yesterday. And I said, mm And she was like, 21. <laughs> Mm-mm. And I did not get that job either. Yeah,
0: I'm sure she knew what was up. Oh man, why did you schedule a job interview for
1: that day? Uh, that was very foolish and ambitious of me.
0: <laughs> oh, that's like when you when you go when you know you've got a night plan and then you schedule like an early flight. Oh uh, yeah. Like present you yeah. should know future you is not gonna make that flight, but you always you always have hope, you know?
1: Yes. I like that you talk in those versions too. I always blame past Annie for all of my mistakes.
0: Oh, um Past Bridget and I we have a lot we have a lot of forgiving to do <laughs> we have to like we have to like go to like a retreat and make 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 amends with each other because I, I have a lot of bones to pick with that lady. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what a retreat that would be.
0: I can only imagine well, we hope this episode has been transparent and helpful and enlightening for you listeners. I mean, if you're a man, definitely go
1: tell a woman how much you make so that she can
0: get her life.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think this is a great conversation to, to continue. And, I, I mean, just this morning I saw something about pay transparency in, um, in Silicon Valley especially. So I'm glad that we were having these conversations. And hopefully we will make it less weird to talk about money. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you listeners. You can email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And you can find
0: us on social media on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You and on Twitter at
1: momstuffpodcast. Podcast. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Andrew Howard. And thanks to you for listening.